4: First Contact with Laurie Siegel is a production of Dot 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 Media and iHeartRadio.
0: It's very natural whenever something like this happens to focus on the negative because there's so much negative. It's actually much harder, but I think ultimately more productive to also focus on what's better than it's ever been and how do we, how do we lean into that? How do we fix the problems, but also how do we just like lean into the stuff that's already better and make it exponentially better? That's where that innovation comes from. So much of the innovation comes from taking advantage and and, and further exploring the things that are possible now for the first time ever.
4: I think we all kind of cringe these days when we hear the word unprecedented. But there really is no better way to say it. We're living in unprecedented times. And while it's easy to get hung up on a lot of the negativity around us, Phil Libin also sees opportunity. Our new hyper-connected lifestyles have revealed weaknesses in the tech we use every day. But new problems lead to new solutions. That's where innovation comes from. Phil is probably best known as the co-founder and former CEO of Evernote. These days, he heads up a company called All Turtles, whose latest project, Mm Mm-hmm, yes, that's right, it's called Mm Mm-hmm, wants to save us all from the Zoom apocalypse. But before we get to Phil, I want to tell you about something new from Dot Dot Dot. It's something I am really excited about. It's our first newsletter called The Gray Area. Each month, The Gray Area confronts the complex issues facing technology and humanity, issues that aren't black and white. And each edition of the newsletter will feature an unfiltered opinion from a big name in tech. Our first contributor is not so coincidentally, today's guest on the show, Phil Livin. And if you're listening to this, it's out right now. So don't miss out. Sign up at dot 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 media dot com slash newsletter. Okay, so let's start the show. I'm Lori Siegel, and this is First Contact. I'm excited to, to interview you. You're a longtime entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, as they say in the business, Right, you are a co-founder of Evernote. You now co-founded All Turtles, which we'll get into, and we have mm-hmm, which is I'm not just saying that for our listeners. That's uh, that's a part of All Turtles, and we'll get into that too. But you're just a fascinating entrepreneur and interesting voice, and and I've known you throughout the years. And we always start these interviews with our first contact and how we first met. And I am racking my brain to try to remember how we first met. Do you remember that?
0: I'm don't but I was I want to say that it was like at some conference probably overseas somewhere but I don't don't know why I think that and it
4: must have been I mean it must have been when you were full-time too with Evernote because I always knew you as Phil from Evernote you created Evernote which you know was was very successful and and was huge for productivity so I I think that's it's always interesting to to see founders do very different things throughout their careers too. Because you're in a whole different stage of your career now too. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. It's. Um, I think I started my first company in in 1997. So I guess I've been doing this for you know 23 years. Yeah, did I do that math right? Yeah, I did that math right. 23 years. I'm old. Yeah.
4: <laughs> By startup it's standards, that's significant.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
4: What was your first company in in 1997?
0: It was called Engine 5 because uh, there was originally going to be five of us, but then two people chickened out. We already mm-hmm. bought the domain name, so we just kept it as Engine 5. Uh, we were one of the first uh, kind of .com yeah. companies. I remember walking around saying dot .com, dot .com a lot. Uh, we built like uh, shopping carts for some of the first like, e-commerce sites. Like we worked for E-Toys and Barnes & Noble and stuff like that. Mm. Back in the beginning of the of the kind of commercial internet. And honestly, it, it, it feels it feels like we're going through a similar thing right now uh, yeah. with uh, kind of the emergence of video as a like fundamental thing for everyone.
4: Yeah. I'm always fascinated by, and we can get into this, these moments of disruption and how yeah. it certainly seems like there's so much change happening right now because of the pandemic, because we're all kind of glued to our screens to some degree. It certainly feels like there's a lot of disruption, which is part of why you're doing kind of what you're doing, but going back, I I read something about when you were younger, you grew up in, in New York, in the Bronx, and you said something about how you just got into computers, you weren't cool enough. Uh, to hang out with the gangs or something. Yeah, the gangs. Like, I the just, gangs
0: wouldn't have me. Yeah. I also like I want
4: because people can't actually see you, so I want them to envision you right now. Like you're just like this. I mean, I don't want to say nerdy, but like you, you have like glasses. You can say nerdy. You know, like you're kind of like a nerdy guy, like with glasses. Like, so that was a very funny statement to to be coming out of your your mouth. Can you tell where did you come from? What was it like? Like, and and how did you get into this idea of computers as a kid who just couldn't be accepted by the gangs in the Bronx?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, so I was born in, in what used to be the Soviet Union in mm-hmm. uh, a city that used to be called Leningrad and St. Petersburg and uh, came over as refugees with my family in 1979. Um, ah. I was eight, I think. Uh, and yeah, we settled in the Bronx and uh, right in the middle of it, a uh, place called Parkchester, which was uh pretty, you know, it's a pretty, pretty rough neighborhood uh, back then. And um, yeah, I think I, I just got lucky. I remember kind of begging my parents for my first computer, you know, when I was, uh, I think I, I saw my first computer in junior high school and then probably got one when I was, you know, 11 or 12 or something like that. And uh, it was like an old Atari 400. And that was it. And then, you know, for the next however many decades it's been, I've been a, a dedicated endorsement sitting at home, hacking around on my, yeah. on my computer. And it definitely let me survive the Bronx because it would have been tough otherwise.
4: Why? What was, I mean, God, it must have been extraordinary to come to New York during that time, like 1979, right? Like that just must have been a really interesting time. I, I can't even imagine.
0: Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was so different, obviously, from what yeah. I was used to. But, you know, at, at that age, like at eight, like it's easy to adopt to anything. So I didn't, really, I didn't yeah. really, think too much about it. But yeah, it was, it was fascinating. Uh, the neighborhood was, um, you know, was extremely diverse. Um you know, school was very unpleasant <laughs> until I got to until I got to high school, because basically, you know, I barely spoke any English. I was I'm kind of um, hmm. as a kid, I was very like punchable, you know, like I was what does kind that of like mean? I was like, I think, I, well, I had a combination of being of thinking of myself as being smart. And so I was probably pretty smarmy and pretty condescending, but I also didn't speak English very well. Right. And was also very physically uncoordinated. I was exactly the kind of kid that would like trip over my own shoelaces and we were poor. So I didn't have like, you know, it was easy to kind of make fun of yeah. you know whatever clothes I was wearing or something. So it's just like a combination of things. The so school was very much uh, not great, but, you know, I had a computer, I had a few really nerdy friends. And yeah, that was that was good enough. And then by the time I got to high school, I went to Bronx Science, uh, which was kind of this like nerd magnet school. And so things yeah. started things started getting a little bit better. Yeah, after that, I kind of followed the you know the the, the typical nerd trajectory. Yeah. Uh, had a lot of good luck.
4: What was it about um, computers, or what was it about that world that was interesting to you?
0: I remember it being like the idea that I could write something and it did something was kind of amazing. I had like, just like learning to program when I was, you know, a little kid, like the, the, it, it literally felt like magic, right. It literally felt like casting a spell. Like I would like say these words and write these symbols and then like stuff happened. Yeah. It was like the feeling of agency that I could actually like make things happen, uh, was, 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 you know, pretty significant and really, really pretty, uh, you know, addictive. Yeah. And of course at that time, like, no one really knew what they were doing. So it was easy to like be a teenager and know how to program and do it more or less as well as professional programmers of the time since there were like relatively few. And so, you know, I was able to like get part-time jobs pretty quickly. And it was just a very, very fortuitous thing. Like if it wasn't for, I have literally like, had I been born 50 years earlier, I have no idea what I could have possibly been (laughs) doing. Uh,
4: and you went on to—I mean, I think I saw you sold your first company for like five hundred dollars or something when you were when you were really when you were very young, very very. Yeah, young. that was uh,
0: yeah in high school. In high so that school, that was before Engine Five. So like in high school, yeah. I started a company and we called it uh, we called it Perseus Data Systems uh, because uh, we took out the Dungeons and Dragons you know uh-huh. deities and demigods book and we just kind of flipped pages. And- uh-huh. We were gonna call it Hermes first because like Hermes is fast, but then we were like, nah, that doesn't sound right. Hermes sounds sketchy. So we decided Perseus Data Systems was the name, but yeah, we sold that for 500 500 Uh, big ones. Well, just 500 ones, yeah.
4: But like in high school, that's a really big deal. Like you must have seen like, wow, like I'm onto something pretty big because $500 for an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley now is like nothing, but like $500 in high school is pretty big deal, so. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I mean, I was working at Carvel ice cream at the time. Like uh-huh. my, my, you know, my summer job or like my part-time job was like scooping ice cream at Carvel. Yeah. And I got fired from that. I couldn't, I wasn't, I was not competent enough. Um, <laughs> Why'd
4: you get fired? What'd you do?
0: Well, I couldn't make the, I, I lacked the physical dexterity to make the soft serve cones. Uh, Cause you know, when you're making the soft serve cones, you have to like You've got the cone, you've right. got the soft turf machine, totally. but you can't just like put the ice cream down the middle of the cone because then you wind up giving away too much ice cream. You have to like twist the cone in an angle so that the ice cream just goes around the edge, right. but doesn't go inside the cone. You're kind of cheating the, the customers out of, right. you know, they think they're getting the full cone, but they're not. And I just, I lack the physical dexterity to like turn it in time. So I always right. wound up like giving away twice as much ice cream and I got fired over that. But I pretended I, in my brain, I resigned for, for ethical reasons, because I wasn't cool with like cheating people out of half their phones. (laughs) So that's what I told myself. I'm like, no, this is oh, this is unethical. I'm out of here. But really, I got that's fired amazing. because I just couldn't. I couldn't
4: do it. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, City Constellation, consolation, I was like the worst waitress ever in high school. So, <laughs> but you, I, it looks like you went on to accomplish some pretty pretty great things. So let's let's move on. Medium things. Yeah, yeah. But uh, great things. So you you went on and you um you co-founded Evernote. And I want to get to kind of the the whole disruption happening in media right now, and why you have a cool background and all that kind of stuff. But What year did you launch Evernote?
0: Uh, 2008. 2008. Um, So Evernote was, um, there was two companies. Yeah. Um, I had just sold my second company or was still in the process of selling my second company. we were in Boston with my team. And we sat around trying to figure out what we wanted to do. And we decided we wanted to, we actually had this really good uh, discussion about this. We we said, my my first company was this e-commerce company. And then with the same team, we after we sold out, we started the second company, which was a security company that sold to like big banks and governments. And we we were sitting around in 2007 saying, I'm tired of thinking about what the customer wants. Like, I just don't care. I don't care what banks want. I don't care what governments want. I don't care what e-commerce stores want. I want to make something for ourselves. Like, what do we want?
5: Yeah.
0: So we just made a list. This is the same co-founders. And someone said... Uh, Oh, we like video games. Well, we should make a video game company. And we got excited about that. But then I was like, ah, oh, there's already so many great video games and I already don't have time to play them. Like, I don't think we really need more video games. Yeah. Like, that's not our role. Then somebody said, oh, we really like this new social media stuff. And I remember getting excited about making a social media company. But then I said, oh, but there's already MySpace and no one can beat MySpace. Like, we're, well. just, it's, we're too late.
5: <laughs> <laughs> so we
0: decided not to do that. And then we said, well, what about productivity? We like like feeling productive. And like, existing productivity was basically Microsoft Office. And it hadn't changed in 30 years. And yeah. it wasn't on smartphones. And so we thought, OK, yeah, let's, let's, that's good. So we started working on it in Boston. And there was this other team in California led by Stepan Pachikov, who is this uh, brilliant uh, Russian-American kind of an entrepreneur and inventor. And he had a team of people working on this like, cognitive prosthesis idea. And so there were two companies. And we kind of glommed them together in 2007 and relaunched uh, kind of what, what was the modern Evernote.
4: It's always interesting to hear how these things come about, right? Because you're right, we have like a hero narrative and it's all this kind of stuff, but it's like you guys are sitting in a room being like, all right, we're sick of hearing what banks want. We're sick of hearing what, you know, other people want. Like, what could we do? And you're sitting here being like, well, no one can compete with MySpace. Let's do productivity, right? Like, I know that sounds, exactly. you know, like yeah. in, in, some, in some way, shape or form, like that's kind of the birth of Evernote is like you couldn't compete with MySpace, you know?
0: Totally. Yeah. We were like, no no one's going to beat MySpace. It's too right. late. <laughs>
4: which, which like <laughs> technically like wasn't really true. I mean, actually not technically, that wasn't true. Facebook came along and like annihilated MySpace, but... Um,
0: yeah, like in a few months. Yeah, basically.
4: like a few <laughs> like months that. later. But aren't you, I mean, <laughs> but technically, are you glad that you didn't, you didn't create like Facebook? They have all sorts of issues, but... Um, Oh, or maybe who knows? You could have created the next Facebook, but but Evernote ended up being a pretty interesting app at a pretty interesting time because 2008 was a fascinating time for for startups and tech, and I, I feel very near and dear to 2008, 2009 because that's around when I started covering technology, and and it was such an interesting time for technology, and and I you know because I, I think we were in a recession, there was a lot of constraint. Uh, it wasn't really that cool to go to Wall Street. and there were a lot of creative people, I would say, like yourself, who were having to who were doing different things and who were seeing that there were a lot of broken systems to some degree. and And I think a yeah, lot of interesting definitely. a lot of interesting things came about at, at that time. and And it seems like Evernote was something that kind of popped out of that time. A lot of different technology came out of that time.
0: Yeah, it was, um, I think, you know, technology follows these S-curves. Something big happens, there's a big disruption. Yeah. And then there's like a ton of activity and a ton of investment and huge amounts of innovation. And then things kind of slow down and people start talking about, oh, is the innovation over? And, you know, and things kind of get, get to a flatter point. And then right away, there's like some other new disruption. It kind of follows these patterns. I could definitely trace those back. You know, I started working probably in like the mid nineties, like 93, 94. And there've been a few of those cycles. Like first it was PCs, just computers. Then it was the internet. Then it was mobile, you know, then it was you know AI. And now it's <laughs> all of this. It's, it's, it's the hybrid world. It's video. It's the, the post-pandemic reality.
4: That's what you think it'll be. I mean, and so let's break that down. I mean, it, you know, mobile, I remember mobile was such a big thing. Like, I, you know, 2008, we had the recession. You had the iPhone had come out, the app store had launched. You had a bunch of entrepreneurs creating all these ideas and encoding them into the hands of, of millions of people. And that was such an extraordinary thing. And then we've heard a lot about AI and where it's going to go and, and whatnot. And you think the next iteration really is, is video and, and some capacity and, and how we're communicating with each other. Like right now, people can't see us, but we're, we're looking at each other over Zoom and you have a cool background that's much cooler than my background, which is my staircase. But you have like a cool virtual background that's not one of the Zoom backgrounds. It's, it's through your, your company that we'll talk about. Um, but, but you think that's kind of the next area of disruption because out of these periods come disruption.
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, your real background is much cooler than my real background because I'm just sitting in my like tiny apartment, like in front of a green sheet. Uh, so, yeah. Thanks. And and I'm kind of glad people can't see us because uh, it's like close to 100 degrees in San Francisco, and we can't open windows because <laughs> you know, the air is on fire. So, I'm, I'm definitely Oof. not looking my best right now. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I think it's exactly right. I think um, you get these massive disruptions, and everything changes. It's very natural whenever something like this happens to focus on the negative, because there's so much negative, and to focus on the problems and to, and to to think about how we how we might be able to get close to what we used to have before. And it's actually much harder, but I think ultimately more more productive to also focus on what's better than it's ever been and how do we how do we lean into that? Well, what are the superpowers that we were all just given because of the pandemic and the emergence of video and Obviously, there's a lot of problems, but there's also some glimmers. There's some things that are better than they've ever been. How do we fix the problems? But but also, how do we just like lean into the stuff that's already better and make it make it exponentially better? Like that's where that innovation comes from. So much of the innovation comes from taking advantage and, and, and further exploring the things that are possible now for the first time ever. Right. And there's just like examples of that. Like once once I started thinking about it in those terms. I can see examples everywhere. And then yeah, we could just we just double down on on, on the ones that we think are gonna be the biggest.
4: More from Phil after the break. And make sure you sign up for our newsletter. It's called the Gray Area and it's out today. Go to dot 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 media dot com slash newsletter to make sure you don't miss it.
1: I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
2: My best hopes.
6: This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption.
0: We're always gonna have predators. It's the good people who stand by
5: and do nothing that allow them to flourish.
6: Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health,
4: I want to go back to finishing off Evernote, you know, because I think we do tell a bit of a hero story, right? And with Evernote, I mean, you know, I just, I always hate to, to interview people like you who are on paper pretty successful, uh, very successful and in, in Silicon Valley and...
0: Moderately successful.
4: Uh, like whatever, you're successful in Silicon Valley standards. And and I, you know, and, and part of the inside baseball crew and, and people come and, and pitch you ideas for funding, and you're doing all sorts of different things. But, you know, being an entrepreneur is really, really hard and and very difficult, and there are all sorts of problems (laughs) that come along with it. Um, So before we get into kind of the the disruption that's happening now, you're a much more seasoned entrepreneur now. What would you go back and, and say to yourself back then? What do you wish you knew then?
0: Well, I, I, I certainly didn't create Evernote. I, yeah. I co-created it with with several other really really brilliant people. And I was, I think, very very privileged to to be part of that crew for a long time. Um, I think seasoned entrepreneur is an interesting way of, 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 of putting it. And I only realized this very recently. And I wish I had realized it sooner. Imagine, like, let's just say that you're a skier. Let's say you're great at skiing. I'm clearly not. Like, I skied once in my life and never again. Uh, but let's just say you're, you know, you're a great skier and, and you're like in your 20s and you know you're skiing, I don't know, moguls, is that a skiing thing? I by the way I've skied once stuff. in my
4: life too. I'm uh, you're not in you're in safe company here.
0: <laughs> okay, but let's say like, you know, we all have friends who are good skiers mm-hmm. and they're, you know, let's just say in their 20s, they're they're like going all out and they're they're doing they're jumping and they're doing kind of crazy things, and you know they kind of know that they're yeah they're sort of screwing up their knees a little bit, but you know it's worth it because you know it's it's it's, it's fun and they're really good at it, and you know you got to be a little bit careful, but um, no one expects that by the time they're in their forties or fifties that they're skiing the same, because right. people are like well yeah like knees are hardware, so of course there's going to be wear and tear and they're gonna you know and like yeah by the time you've been skiing for thirty years you know maybe you're fifty. You're a much more experienced skier. You've got 30 years of experience, but you're just not going to be as good. You're not going to be able to do the same stuff. It's right. just physically, you've kind of been banging up your knees for 30 years. And that doesn't surprise people because, again, people think that knees are hardware. But somehow people think that your brain is software, right? They think like, oh, well, if you're running a company and you're doing all this extreme stuff and you're an entrepreneur and it's all high stress and it's endless days and you're doing it in your 20s, like, sure, now, now if you're doing it 20 years later, like, it must be easier, because you're experienced, right? Well, yeah, it's you're more experienced, but you've also been beating up your brain for 20 or 30 years. And, you know, your brain is, is also hardware, just like your knees are. Yeah. And the, the stress and the damage accrues. And you have to, and, and, and there's ways to mitigate it, but you have to be very intentional about mitigating it. And you can't do the same things as an entrepreneur in your, in your 30s, and your 40s, and your 50s, as you could do, you know, in your 20s. It just doesn't, it doesn't work the same way. And we're no one is taught that. Yeah. Like we're sort of taught to assume that like no 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 this is this is what you do you go all out and you know it's a it's a it's a completely uh, all encompassing pursuit you know being a startup founder and um, yeah and if you're on your fifth company I'm I'm currently on my fifth startup mm-hmm, is my fifth one it's like oh yeah you've done all this before so it should be easier and in some sense it is because I've done a lot of it before so I kind of know you know where the, the ski jumps are but a lot of it is harder because i'm you know 23 years older than the first time i did it uh and i didn't realize that i didn't think of it like that i didn't think of the like the brain is no more you know software than your knees are until yeah. until pretty recently and i, and I kind of wish i would have and i think then i would have uh you know i would have just been more mindful about what am i doing to take care of my brain and how do i how am i managing stress and relationships and everything else kind of on a more on a more day-to-day basis and I think a lot of founders don't do that. Uh, and I think I would have been a better CEO and a better founder had I taken that seriously earlier and not been quite so cavalier about uh, what my limits were.
4: So how do you do that? Asking for a friend.
0: <laughs> well, not very well uh, yet. Uh, you know, I guess the first step is just being aware of it. Yeah. And like not brushing it off because I very much used to brush it off. I was very much like, yeah, that's that's not a thing. Like work-life balance, like what the hell's yeah that uh, so just being aware of it uh, is important. And then, uh, you know, look, I'm, I'm in San Francisco. Uh, a few years ago, there was a law passed that required all CEOs and VCs to get into meditation. Like we'd had, there was like a mindfulness bill. There was like strict penalties for not meditating. So, you know, I followed the law. I started meditating. I became, you know, more mindful. Uh, I, uh, a few years ago, decided to take my health seriously. I think when we first met, I was probably 90 pounds heavier than I am now. Um, so, you know, I had to do... I'll, I to start taking that seriously and figure out how to how to get into again some 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 amount of mindfulness some amount yeah. of wellness some amount of you know fitness and just uh, doing things that I never considered important before because I never cared about myself and I still don't care about myself that much I'm still primarily motivated by the impact yeah. but what I didn't realize before is that like the impact I can have is directly based on what kind of shape I'm in Yeah and if I don't care about myself, I'm just going to be in very bad shape because, like, running a company, especially a startup, is very much physically damaging. Yeah. Uh, and so, unless you take care of yourself, it's just, it's, it's, it's not, it's not the way to maximize your impact. So, I guess if I had to, everything to do all over again, I would have, I would have had that realization when I was 25, not when I was yeah. 45. Uh, but then. It's interesting. I actually think like the pandemic has caused me to professionally adopt all sorts of behaviors that I never had before, which I am hopeful will last uh post-pandemic because I think they've been really useful. Like what? Um Okay, so like well this is in the spirit of like not focusing on what's not as good, yeah. but focusing on what's better. So I thought, okay, man, um I make, this is going to suck working, you know, remotely because I make so many important decisions, just like going on a serendipitous coffee walk. Like I'll run to someone at the office and I'll be like, let's go, let's go walk for coffee. And then we'll walk for coffee and we'll make some important decisions. Yep. And I was very much like an in-person person, person, impromptu like that. And I can't do that anymore. How, like how's things, how are things going to operate? And I really miss that. And then what I realized just in the past few months is, well, I can't do that anymore because I'm not physically around people to go for coffee walks, but actually making important decisions by randomly running into someone and then walking for coffee is not a great way to make decisions because like everyone else feels out of the loop and it's not properly documented. Mm. And the people who don't happen to be remote aren't like full citizens. And so the fact that we couldn't do that forced me to say, all right, well, I guess I have to like communicate much more in writing right. like, over Slack, over video. We have to like make plans. We have to stick to plans. Right. I can't, I can't rely on the people who I like, Therefore, there are the people that I go coffee walking with. You know, like that can't be the 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 like I have to I have to be able to work with and make decisions with people who I wouldn't normally go for a walk with just because, you know, it just didn't mesh as well. And that's harder. It's like harder for me because I've had to change, you know, 20 whatever years of of, of management style. But it's so much better, right? Because obviously, like if like forcing myself to do this right is much more scalable habits, and and hopefully even after the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Like, I am going to be doing a lot more, you know, written plans and and thinking about how to communicate and yeah. doing stuff like that because it's clearly a healthier way to run a company.
4: Yeah. We all, to some degree, become more accountable in writing and, and you know, it, it, in this form of communication yeah. to some degree. Well,
0: like, um, you know, we live in Figma now. It's like, I love Figma. It's like my favorite part about, you know going to work every day. is like getting on Figma, seeing what everyone's doing, seeing what everyone's done from the night before. Like, it's great. And we have a lot of like creative meetings in Figma. And at first I thought, man, this isn't going to be as good because uh, we used to do a lot of like brainstorming in person. We would like cram into a conference room and we'd like put, put you know, sticky notes on, on whiteboards mm-hmm. and like do all sorts of stuff like that. And we can't do that in Figma or we can do you know something similar. But I thought like the creative brainstorming isn't going to be as good because we're just going to miss that like in-person vibe. And and it's true. We miss the in-person vibe. But what I noticed is like all of a sudden, oh man, I'm getting a lot more out of like the relatively shy employees huh. this way. Yeah. Because I guess it turns out that like I can be an overbearing ass in an in-person meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and I'm not quite right. You no, know, that's harder to do when we're like in Figma and voting on things by putting dots. And so all of a sudden, like I'm noticing the contribution of people who were frankly like wallflowers before. Yeah. And like, that's amazing, right? Because like, it turns out their talent and their productivity is not correlated to like how willing they are to interrupt me, the CEO in person and say, no, I think that's wrong. Yeah. So, you know, we've like put, a, put up a structure to allow that. And all of a sudden, like, yeah, I just feel like productivity has just gone like way up. Uh, so like, that's good. That's a That's a positive effect of... This world. So how do we how do we do more of that? Yeah. So all sorts of things like that. In fact, I think my my work style. I, I've never had a period of of, of this much change, and wow. I think the vast majority of it has been for the better.
4: Wow, that's um, that's great. I, I feel like I'm medium. <laughs> Like I think it's it's actually kind of dot dot dot. It's to be to be determined, right? On on my end, right? It's it's a it's a constant struggle. Sometimes I'm like, this is amazing, and sometimes I'm like, well, you know, I'm not 100 percent sure. Because especially in the creative world, it's you sometimes rely on those in person interactions, and so I think that's a, it's probably a good way to segue into what you're doing now, because it's you know it certainly feels like the way of like traditional video and how we interact, and and the, this idea of remote work it seems to some degree broken. If the future is remote work, and I'm not, I'm not sure what the future of remote work is. I think to some degree, we're all going to want human connection when things open up again. But will things ever go back to, nor, quote, normal? You know, I, I don't know if we will have a, quote, normal. We've really seen that we can do a lot of things easier over video and whatnot. And I think that's kind of the, the premise for what you're launching um, with Mhm. Right? Did I, I say it correctly? Uh, so did. you know. So first of all, tell us, tell us a little bit what it is, and it it's under the umbrella of All Turtles, which is you know something that you launched a, a while back. Which, which I love that you kind of compared it to to Netflix, right? This idea of like the, the Netflix model. Um, right. So and that's a lot to kind of pack in there. So so maybe we start with with All Turtles, and and it's this idea that you know if we're looking at technology. Um, you kind of talk about tech being a little bit broken and how they they do things, and you kind of like the Hollywood model, and and that's how your your next iteration of All Turtles kind of came about, and mm-hmm is under that. So let's let's start with All Turtles.
0: Well, uh, yeah. So we started All Turtles about three and a half or four years ago. Um, so basically, after Evernote, I thought I was going to semi retire, and so I became a VC. I became a, a managing director at General Catalyst, which is a, an amazing fund. But I realized after about two years that I just wasn't like she wasn't very good at being a professional investor. I didn't enjoy it very much, but I think I didn't enjoy it because I wasn't particularly good at it. Mm. And basically because like people would pitch me and I would get excited about the idea. And um, Hemant, my partner at, at General Catalyst, um, at one point took me aside right in the beginning. And he's like, the mistake you're making is you hear these pitches and you're excited about what you would do with this idea. But that's like terrible way to make investment decisions about because you're not going to do anything with this idea. You got to get excited about what these founders are going to do with the idea. And I was like, yeah, that's actually totally true because as a CEO, like I hear a good idea and like, I don't really care who proposed it. Like I can like, I can think of all sorts of things. I can like assign people to work on stuff, but totally not how a venture works. So that and other reasons, I wasn't that good at it. So I started All Turtles, which is a product studio. And the idea was uh, we just want to build worthwhile products for the world with you know as little nonsense as possible as little of the the nonsense that the Silicon Valley style, like VC startup treadmill produces. There's just a lot, you know, a lot of the myths that go around it don't actually make any sense.
4: Like what? Because can we just talk about all of them right now? There's so many myths. Like, uh, you know, I feel like there's just a lot of stuff that just gets said and thrown around and then people just start believing it. And and it's just like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So just name a couple.
0: Yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, because, uh, the conventional wisdom doesn't get to be, isn't true, right? It didn't get to be conventional because it's true. The conventional wisdom like gets to be conventional because like it's easy to repeat while sounding smart. Right. So there's like no, no correlation between like how often people say something and how true it is. In right. fact, sometimes it's, it's, it, like, it's inverse. Like what's
4: your least favorite one? Just come on. It's like, what's your, well, which, which one do you hate the most? Uh,
0: well, there's, there, there's a whole category that I call focus. Uh huh. Uh, and like focus is a thing that only exists like in hindsight, mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you're successful, you've achieved exactly the perfect amount of focus. Mm-hmm. If you're not successful, then either, oh man, you just didn't do enough. You were like too narrowly focused and you, you're like the TAM, the total addressable market wasn't big enough in what you were doing. Or, oh, it's like too diffuse. You did too much stuff. And right. so like you, you can only have the right amount of focus in hindsight. Right. And yet the most common advice VCs give entrepreneurs is to focus. And I'm like, boy, that is such a not useful piece of advice because like, <laughs> Unless you're coming back from you know ten years in the future, telling me right. like it's just not useful right now, right? You know, another one is um, typically it's hard to invest in anything unless you think it could be a multi-billion-dollar idea, and so entrepreneurs are very much incented to pretend that all of their ideas could be multi-billion-dollar ideas. Otherwise, it's you know it's hard to get investment, and that's weird, right? Why, why should that be the case? Why should it be that? The only worthwhile ideas are ones that might be worth many, many billions of dollars. Yeah. Um, it makes sense for VCs, like the way that VC math works. It totally makes sense, but that's not good for the world. That's not good for founders. Yeah, you know, I, I did I did this back of the envelope math when I was starting Old Hurdles. I did this back of the envelope math and I looked at now this was back in like 2017, so it's changed a little bit since then. The industry's gotten a little bit better, but not not by much probably. But I did a little bit of math and I said, okay, what makes you likely to get a top tier Silicon Valley Series A round done. Like just, you know, just top tier VCs, you know, the top 20 or 30 of them, top tier A round, what does it take? And I did a little bit of math and it turns out there was basically six factors that like contributed, that predicted like how likely you were to get a good, a good A round from a tech VC in Silicon Valley. So if you were male, white or South Asian, between the ages of 21 and 27 with a computer science degree or engineering, like basically with a computer degree from Stanford and you still lived within 50 miles of Stanford, if you were those six things, you have like some, some odds. Let's just normalize that to say one, like you have yeah. some chance. Obviously it's still really hard and there's nothing wrong with being those things. But like, if you were all six of those things, let's just say your, your odds are normalized at one Yeah. for every one of those six things that you weren't your odds dropped off by an order of magnitude, wow. by, by by two to ten x for each thing, for each of the six things. So a lot of the deals that wound up getting done, all six things were true. And, you know, sometimes, pretty often, it would be five out of six. Sometimes four out of six? Wow. Almost never less than that. Like the number of deals that only three out of those six things, things are true or fewer, very low. So if you're a, you know, 40-year-old woman in Tokyo that had studied architecture, you know, you could be a Mozart-level genius, but you're not, you're not, you're not getting into the, to the startup ecosystem. And there's a lot more people like that than there are the people that meet these six things. Right. And so that's like a massive, massive, massive inefficiency. And again, I'm not like faulting the VC industry for focusing on that. And, and a lot of them are getting a lot better now. Yeah, because it makes sense like you can you can you can make a lot of money and there's a lot of great innovation that comes out of those things. But how could that possibly be more than one tenth of one percent of the total possible important innovation in the world?
2: Right. right.
5: Uh,
0: so, we, yeah, so we basically made a studio to try to not have that kind of lens to try to take a much broader lens. And uh, yeah, we've been working at it for about almost four years. It's been really hard because it's a new model. Yeah. But you know, now now we're starting to see some successes. So it's starting to feel pretty good right now. And yeah, mm-hmm is our second spin-out. So no, we work on things that we don't when we started, we don't really care about is it gonna become a startup or is a big company gonna own it or whatever. Like we don't we don't focus on the legal en- entity of the product first. We just wanna make the product. But then some things will then become individual startups and spin out and yeah, you know, we've done a couple of those now. Mm-hmm is the latest.
4: Well, it is interesting. You talk about those numbers are staggering. Unfortunately, like I could act shocked, and I, I wish I had like more of like a appalled, whatever. But it's just like you know, you cover this stuff, and it isn't even surprising, right? And, no, you know, which so. is right. which is which is upsetting, but it's just not even surprising. And, and it's interesting, you know. And there's a lot lost because the types of products that are developed just aren't as interesting and and aren't as widespread, and you know, won't impact. I think, the world in the, in the same way when they're developed by the same people. And I think it's interesting when I was looking through the portfolio of the, the folks on, under Alt Turtles, like I, I think Replica is under there. We've done a lot on on Replica, yeah. Um, yeah. which was founded by Eugenia Kudya, who's a fascinating entrepreneur from, from Russia who is creating these AI chatbots that people are befriending and they're helping with mental health. And there's all these interesting ethical issues, but it's such a fascinating, fascinating um, use of technology that could not be more human, that I almost feel like it would take such a different type of entrepreneur, you know, and, and it, she's the exact type of entrepreneur, I think that that is so f- interesting. And so I, I it was cool to see that in your in the portfolio under there. And, and, I, and I do think what you're talking about with the Netflix model was was interesting of giving people the ability to just go kind of create and looking at almost like Hollywood as the model for, you know, helping people create different companies.
0: Yeah, we kind of thought about it like this. Like, let's say, thought experiment, let's say that um, you are one of the most naturally gifted and talented musicians in the world. Like, you are a Mozart level genius musician, you know, one, literally, like, you know, one in a million right now. Well, um, what do you, you don't have to make a music company. Yeah. You just play. Right. And the platforms exist, like YouTube and others, where if you're really, like, Mozart-level genius, like, yeah, your music will reach, you know, millions of people. And uh, you can focus on what you're amazingly good at. Yeah. Let's say you're one of these, like, again, one in a million super brilliant, you know, writers. You don't have to, like, start a publishing company. You can write. Yeah. And these platforms exist where you're going to, you know, be able to, to get to a big audience. But if you're, like, a Mozart-level one in a million genius, like, product creator you have to start a company first? Like we tell you like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Here's the Wikipedia page on how to start a startup. Uh, here's what a foreign evaluation is. Go raise some money uh, and like first become a mediocre CEO of this like fragile little thing called a startup and then we'll talk about your product idea. What the hell? Like why? Why, why would that be the way that, that, that we wanna make things in the world? Right. Now, you know, it'd be like Stanford saying like, If you want to work in the physics department at Stanford, you have to be a world-class, brilliant physicist, but you also have to, like, play the clarinet at, like, a professional orchestra level.
6: Right. Right.
0: Them's the rules. And, like, you know, if we did that, we would get a lot of amazing physicists at Stanford who are also world-class clarinet players because there are people like that, but, like, not most of them.
5: (laughs) Right. Right.
0: So why do we just, why do we, like, glom these two totally unrelated things together? Yeah. Some people are great at being early stage CEOs and are brilliant at product people, but for the most part, those are not directly connected. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so, so when we said Netflix model, that's what we meant. It's like, if you're one of the world's most brilliant like filmmakers, let's say you just graduated from you know film school and you're a really gifted filmmaker and you wanna make a movie, you're not like, okay, right, so what do we do? So first we have to start a film company and we have to get some money from seed investors And then we have to, like, hire an HR team and then, like, we can, like, start making our movie, right? That's not – no, like, what you're thinking is, like, okay, I got to pitch this to Netflix. I want my movie made at Netflix or at HBO.
5: Right.
0: And so, like, these full-stack studios attract by far the best talent they make really creative stuff. It's not like they're making derivative cookie cutter things. I mean, of course they are. Yeah. But also they make really original stuff totally globally, totally worldwide, like every, in every like in in dozens of countries in the world. And we just wanted to do the same thing. We wanted to like we wanted to do that, but not for movies and TV shows. We wanted to do that for tech products.
4: Right. Which is really interesting. And 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 also kind of gave birth to, I say it again, mm-hmm. So t- talk to me about it's let's like set the scene. It's um, March, maybe April, you know, and we all start communicating and having to switch to remote work. And and it happened almost abruptly. And and it was clumsy and weird. And we had a lot of feelings. And we're all battling our mental health. And, and, you know, and and things are getting lost in context. And we're all having to deal with this kind of new way of work. And the Zoom apocalypse is upon us. and, And half the population figures out what zoom is for the first time and all these things are beginning to happen um and then what is going on in your head we don't have to make this the perspective story but like the aha moment for you is what
0: (laughs) yeah so we were i you know we sent everyone home and went into quarantine in early march Mm -hmm. and um at that point i think we had eight or nine things going on at all turtles Mm -hmm. and you know the world's falling apart economies in free fall And uh, we had an all-hands meeting, which we never really used to do before, but we decided, okay, well, now we're working over video, so let's do all-hands. So we did an all-hands meeting, and I said, look, um, my priority right now is not to fire anyone. Like, what I'm going to optimize for is I don't want to lay anyone off. Like, I just don't want to lay anyone off during the pandemic. And, like, that's very much not the advice that a lot of, you know, entrepreneurs are getting back then. Uh, But I'm like, and, and, and I get it. I get that sometimes the right thing to do is to immediately lay people off because you kind of have to survive. Like, I get it. Yeah. I just don't feel like it. I don't feel like doing it. I'm like, I'm like, I'm old enough. I've done this enough. Like, you know, we had very little money, but I'm just gonna try to optimize for not laying people off. Yeah. And you know, kind of got the team around that and said, said, look, these are the things we're working on. Let's figure out what to double down on, what to pivot. We can't assume that we're gonna get any more investment. So assume that investment markets are totally done. So basically we have to get to profitability. And then we just all go heads down. And you know, the team does really well on a bunch of different projects or the teams. And we're just working. We're just heads down every day. And it's it's hard. It's tedious. Everyone's got different you know, life circumstances, obviously. Yeah. But we spend a few months doing that. And then in early May, I think, I'm just sitting around just bored because of how tedious living on video is. It's just like, oh, I'm so tired. Yeah. And everyone looks so crappy. And it's like, and um, I had this green towel, camping towel. I had a green camping towel. Like, it's pretty small. And so I just hung it up on the wall. Behind me, yeah, it didn't cover the whole frame. It was just like a had a stupid towel hanging behind me, and I just started experimenting, projecting like in Zoom, just like using the Zoom green screen functionality to just put like different pictures on this camp towel behind me, just to like liven up the meetings a little bit. I think the first thing I ever had there was like the like the the super frowny picture of Anthony Fauci, Mm -hmm. like glaring, right, had that over my shoulder (laughs) as I would talk, and you know, and like I started having meetings with this, and I would show art back there, and people would like it, and they would laugh. And then I got Steve, who's one of our engineers and our co-founder at mm-hmm, And we just started, you know, hacking around with it. And pretty quickly, it just became obvious that, like, this was this was a thing. So within a few weeks, it went from, you know, the two of us kind of part-time hacking around, like, really as a joke. Yeah. To kind of being like, no, I think actually, like, everyone who sees it really wants it and asks, like, well, what are you doing? How can I start doing it? And so we decided to make it into a, into a product. And it, it took off from there. But, yeah, it's been really, really fast.
4: Yeah. And... Describe exactly what it is, because you did a demo for me, which is kind of cool. And it's kind of like this interactive experience of all the things we're frustrated with, with Zoom, kind of trying to optimize to make it seem a little bit better. Is that a safe way to say it? I feel yeah. like it's downplaying it. So so you do a better job of it.
0: No, I mean, like the one the one second page is, it's, it's like instant weekend update. Right. right. It just lets you uh, very quickly <laughs> do this... Uh, very familiar style of, you know, being like John Oliver or like right. a newscaster or like somebody on, on SNL. So it just lets you choose what room you're in, like your, phys- your, right. your, your, your physical room. And you have like lots of different options. I'm sitting in this like little cartoon paper world with cute ducks and, you know, clouds right. and uh, and trees. But, you know, I can be... Uh, I could be in something that's a lot more um, kind of fancy and realistic. If yeah. I want to have a fancy bookcase, or
4: I know I should say, like for our listeners, like first of all, you just had like the weekend update kind of box that like we see on SNL, and then now you're you look like you're in like you know people have like these Zoom backgrounds where their heads disappear, and it's like kind of upsetting in the middle of like a presentation, and no one wants to say anything, <laughs> but like you seem like you're in like a beautiful apartment that like none of us could afford in New York City right now. That's kind of like what I would describe it as. I, this is like a fun game. I feel like every background I can just describe it. Our listeners or something. Yeah, do, do this one. Oh no, <laughs> um, you look like you're like a Grateful Dead fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: This one, this right? one, maybe not, not, not for early in the day. Or, but yeah. or you
4: look like, I mean, what, this looks like the smart drug phase of Silicon Valley in your background. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. it's kind of like yeah. a a, I don't like stained glass church windows with a little psychedelic effect. How is that? <laughs>
0: That's, that's quite good. Yeah. Thank you. Man, we should get you like write the descriptions for for these things.
4: I mean, a creator storyteller, nonetheless. Keep, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so I can basically
0: going. I can choose you know I can choose backgrounds. Oh, uh, good, this is cool. a, a scrolling kind of Game of Thrones style you know paper map mm-hmm. or, or something. Uh, I yeah. like. I think this one is my favorite. I think I'm like this one is like nice and calm. Wow. It's just yeah. Paper waves. Right. Uh, and then I and then I just have a screen and uh, the screen behind me I can just show kind of whatever I want to show I can. Choose where you know where it goes, what site it's in, uh, and I can do presentations like this. So if I'm um, you know if I want to present a slide rather than having to share my screen, I can just uh, you know I can shrink and I can fly around the screen. I can you know point yeah. to things you know this way. Um, so it just makes it really easy to um, make this really visually compelling uh, communication, and I can do that by myself. Uh, we have a co-pilot mode so two people can do this kind of at the same time. I can make recordings that are interactive. And so it's a it's a it's a way to liven up everyone's performance over video. Right. Either like in, in a Zoom call or or you know on a video call or when making content, when making videos, or as a replacement for sending boring PowerPoint slides around. Yeah. And that's the that's the main idea.
4: It, you know, what's interesting is it's not cheesy, if that makes sense, right? Like, you know, to, to some degree, like you talk about your shrinking and people might not know what that looks like, but it seems pretty seamless. Like, this sounds like geeky to describe over, over like a, a podcast, but there is friction when you're sharing your screen and everyone's awkward and in these video boxes. And I think maybe the tech person or the tech journalist in me kind of always says, like, okay, something's broken here. Like, everyone's awkwardly waiting. People are hoping that they don't share anything awkward on their screen, right? And when you do that, it, it certainly looks like you're experiencing something different, right, and new, and, and can you do that in a seamless way? So I can understand, you know, the the point behind it. And so I think it's interesting to see all the things you can do with it, right? And and this idea of, like, if Zoom is going to be the future to some degree, and who knows if once this is all over, if we're going to be on Zoom at all, but I have a feeling that we'll be on Zoom to some degree, Um you know what is the upgraded version of media and interactivity, and and that seems to be what you guys believe that that mm hmm. Which I want to get into why you named it mm hmm because I feel I, I don't know why I just feel awkward saying like mm hmm into the mic many times, but um but you know why <laughs> you guys believe that this is kind of the future of how we interact with each other in in the remote environment, right?
0: Yeah, I think that the initial idea and like the very first product like the, what, what exists now is basically it's really it's really simple most people who are good at their jobs in, in many many industries are also good performers so you know if you think about like the best teachers you've ever had like those teachers like knew that they were performers and were good at performing and like the best doctors are performers and obviously the best journalists are also performers right like, like the best bankers or the best you know entrepreneurs like all of us have to perform right all of us have these like multiple times a day, these like little micro performances right. where we say like, hey, like look at me, I'm doing a bit over here. Maybe we're just doing it for our kids or yeah. our friends or, or our boss or whatever. And what's happened is now that we were all forced suddenly to do it over video, none of us knows how to perform anymore. And so we've just lost a lot of the effectiveness of everything because right. you lose the basic like showmanship and the basic personality if you're just an anonymous head in a box on video. And, you know, like your the, the gestures don't quite work the same way and you can't like point if you're like showing slides, if you're doing it in person, you can like, you can like practice like how to how to point to things and then how to like shrug. But if you're performing over zoom, and you're like just doing a presentation people you're either asking people to choose between looking at you or looking at your slides and not both at the same time and so you just lose like all of that basic showmanship capabilities and that just made everything worse like shockingly worse because all of a sudden we went from a world where people who were kind of at the top of the game inherently knew how to be somewhat memorable yeah to well no, none of us know how to do this now right And so we were just trying to fix that. We were just kind of trying to say like, there's actually no reason that stuff over video needs to be boring. In fact, like, obviously, we have TV, right? We have Saturday Night Live. We have movies. There's a whole industry of people that know how to be quite entertaining over video. It's just that the rest of us don't. And actually, those those people don't either over Zoom because it's a very different tool set. So can we just improve people's performance? Can we just re-inject some personality? into this. And so we, we thought, you know, we thought a lot about mm-hmm and what you did in the product. We were like, and we decided specifically, like, we are not a communication product. We're not a collaboration product. We're not like where your team gathers to do work. Like we're not trying to replace Figma or Slack or any of these other things. We improve your performance. Like what, what you do in mm-hmm, is you perform, you have a micro performance. And we're very focused on that. And, and there's just not a lot of people doing that. Yeah. Uh, surprisingly, I think there's going to be now. So that that's that's it. Like that's the basic idea, right? It's like we were all boring on video, but we and, and and being boring is bad because it like makes us ineffective in our jobs. It's part of why you know online learning is so difficult. Yeah. But there's no reason that that education over video has to be boring. Like I was, um, you know, back back in the real world, I, I was on the speaking circuit. I would once in a while do some. Poor set of decisions people would pay me to go and give a talk about something, mm-hmm. usually entrepreneurship or something, something, right? And, you know, I, I, I'm okay at it. Uh, like, I was I was an okay professional speaker. And uh, I was talking to my speaking bureau uh, a few months ago, and they were like, man, yeah, like, online, like, the whole industry is just dead. Like, no one wants to pay for for people to give speeches online because they're, like, they're boring, and it's, like, they're not engaging, and, like, you, you can't compete with, like, people's kids running around, and you can't hold their interest. And I'm like, I can Right, Like, you, you can't because you suck at speaking over video. But, right. like, when I do it, it's okay. Yeah. And, like, you know, those people had the same kids running around last year when they were watching the final season of Game of Thrones, and they had no problem, like, HBO had no problem holding their attention. Right. So let's just, like, let's just not try to replicate the old style. Let's do something native to this medium, and it could be quite good. And when I give a speech now about, you know, naming or branding or whatever, like it's much better than I used to do it in person because I can like fly around the screen and point the things with my head and show graphs. And I couldn't do these things yeah. in person before. So, so that was really the idea. It's just like, let's just make people entertaining again so that the world can start being effective yeah. and not like dreary. And then from there, it obviously became a much bigger thing because I think you're right. I think this is a once in a generation transformation of the entire world.
4: So what does that mean for how we communicate? When you say this is a, a once in a generation transformation of the world, what as a tech entrepreneur do you think will be completely transformed?
0: Well, um, so I think the main change uh, is this, right? Is that everything is hybrid. And, you know, for your listeners, I just put up a slide that says everything is hybrid. Yeah. It's, you know, very literal. So everything is hybrid from now on. And uh, really hybrid, I think, like this. Like imagine the spectrum of in-person to online, right? There's like some stuff that's in-person, some stuff that's online. And then there's a, a different dimension of live versus pre-recorded. So if you kind of cross these two things, you get, a, you get a two by two. You get four quadrants, right? In-person, live, online, and recorded. And in the before times, you know, eight months ago, almost every experience fit neatly into just one of these quadrants, right? So for example, like music concerts were in-person and live, What And like doctor's visits were in person and live. But like YouTube videos were online and pre-recorded. And it was pretty rare for something to exist in more than one box. Once in a while, but pretty rare. And the big change now is because we're doing so much stuff over video, the boundaries between these boxes is melting away. Yeah. And we can rebuild every single experience as a combination of live, plus in person, plus pre-recorded, plus online. We can like we could remix each of those things. And this is a massive transformation. And it'll continue after we emerge back, you know, blinking into the sun, because it's better than it ever was before. Like for example, for healthcare, right? Like if I had to you know, make an appointment to see a doctor before, you know, 8 months ago, I'd have to like pick up the phone and like be on hold and then like schedule an appointment and then drive to a doctor's office and then sit in the in the lobby and wait and then like finally get in person and, and and talk with the doctor who was like trying to get me to get rid of me as quickly as possible because they have to see you know 50 more patients why Like, I'm never doing that again, right? It's obviously much better to just be able to, like, hop in online and not drive and, you know, not have to wait and, you know, get a lot more attention uh, and have things explained to me kind of correctly. And also, like, the doctor doesn't have to explain everything to me live. I can just, you know, click around and do stuff myself. And if I need to come in in person for some, you know, lab test or something, then I can do that. Otherwise, things can be mailed to my house. Like, that is the hybrid experience, and it's better. Right. Than, the, than the only in-person experience. And I think the same thing is true for education and for sales and for well, like all of these other things.
4: It's better, right? It's better if you can still maintain some sense of humanity, because what I think we all struggle with right now is, um, you know, this, this experience right now. Um, this is great because we have the things in the background and I can see you more animated and whatnot, but... Oh, man, if I were able to see you in person, wouldn't it be extraordinary? We haven't seen each other in, in so long, you know? And, and so how do you replicate, and not replicate, because you talk about not wanting to replicate that, right? But how do you recreate a new experience that feels uh, rewarding and human? And how do you utilize technology to do that? Because right now, I think and, and we've i've talked about this for a long time but technology does make us and we are in a moment where technology uh, we're all questioning does make us feel lonelier worse you know we're we looking at misinformation we are looking at like a time where kind of the pendulum has swung one way and, and we are at a moment in the pandemic where we're relying on a lot of these these platforms to make us feel better and, and they're not necessarily bringing us more human connection and if anything it's kind of quite the opposite
0: yeah i think i think it's right i think there's um I think there's kind of two really important philosophical concepts of what you just said. One is, yeah, you're totally right. Like, it's not about replicating the, the old reality. Uh, that's that's a really big thing, right? If you think about replicating the old reality and with a new set of limitations and technologies, like, it's always going to be disappointing. Because the old reality was built using the old technology and limitations. And you can't replicate it. So if, you, if, if, if your success is, like, how close can you get to the old reality? You're always going to fail. Right. So... You can't replicate it. You have to, you have to redesign it, right? You have to do it native to the new reality. Yeah. The example here is, um, imagine, um, some of the very first movies ever made, like the f- earliest films, you know, from the teens and twenties, 1920s, they had film cameras, but they hadn't invented anything else about movies. And so what they knew was theater. And so they were just trying to replicate the re- the old reality, which is actors on a stage. And so they were just like film actors on a stage and, Early films are really weird because that's all they knew. They hadn't invented, like, close-ups and two-camera shots and cutaways and editing. But a few decades later, you had the first, like, native to cinema, you know, directors, and they invented all the stuff, and we had movies. And movies were a totally different thing than theater. But for a while, people were thinking of them as, like, oh, it's a very poor substitute for theater. I used to go to plays here, and, like, now they converted it to, to a movie theater, and they show these movies, and it's just a, an inferior version of theater. Well, yeah, because they were just trying to replicate theater. It took a while for it to become a totally new thing. And the same thing happened with television. And obviously the same thing happened with, you know, with, with smartphones, right? So when we started Evernote 2007, 2008, smartphones were a new thing and existing companies knew how to make desktop apps. So like Microsoft knew how to make Microsoft Word. And so the first generation of smartphone apps were like a shrunken down version of Microsoft Word to fit on a smaller screen. But obviously like, that's not, that isn't what anyone wanted. And right. So It took a few years for things like Evernote and Dropbox and Uber and Airbnb to come around to be like, these are native, we're not trying to replicate computer PC applications on your phone. We're trying to make a totally new thing that couldn't be done before. Same thing is happening with video, right? Like Zoom saying, okay, so uh, meetings, right? Meetings were a bunch of boring people sitting in a boring room together for an hour with an agenda and um, they can't all be in the same room together. How do we get as close as possible to a bunch of boring people sitting in a boring room but with computers and yeah, like it's never going to be as good, yeah. but that's, that's the wrong design goal, right? You have to be like, well, what the hell were the meetings there for in the first place? How do we, how do we reimagine them totally differently? So yeah. this is always the, 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 the friction, right? Like it's never going to be as good as it was before. And we're always going to feel sadness for the things we've lost. And that's fine. That's supposed to be that way. At the same time, in many ways, they're gonna be better than it's ever been, but those ways are different. And we need to like lean into those. Something can be great and terrible at the same time. Like great and terrible are not opposites. Good and bad are not opposites, right? Like something could be very good and very bad. They don't average out, they don't cancel each other out. And like the world we're living in right now is very bad. And also kind of good in some ways. But not like not in a way that you can average and come up with like an average score. Yeah. And so it's both. So like, yeah, like I, I miss seeing you in person. Yeah. And 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 I, I hope that we do see each other in person, you know, at some point yeah. when, when we can come back out into the real world. But I also think that this conversation right now over video is maybe the best conversation we've had. Yeah. So like it's 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 both good and bad.
4: Yeah. More from Phil after the break. And make sure to subscribe to First Contact wherever you listen to your podcast so you don't miss an episode.
1: I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
4: My best
2: hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of.
1: Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
6: podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's
1: like the police knew who he was before they got here.
6: A story about money, power, and corruption.
4: When we look to the future, um, even of this platform, right, you're you're absolutely right. Like, I, I think maybe when we think about disruptive technology to some degree, we have to mourn what we lost and then think about all the amazing things that can come. And and so I'll take this two ways. First, where will we see this go, right? like Because this can be, sure, for remote work, but as even a journalist or as someone who is on CNN for a decade, right? Like I could see people building a channel over this. I have a friend who's a magician who's doing Zoom magic right now. I could see that. I mean, like where, where are you seeing, this is in beta, it's closed beta right now, but people can sign up to be a part of it. But, but where do you see this going? You know, this layer that you're building on top of video, like where do you see the promise of this?
0: I think, um, I think for people, for 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 individuals for consumers, I think we're we're kind of creating this big new industry that we're we're calling uh, PVP for personal video presence, and the idea is um, if you think you know eight months ago, how many of us had to conduct important part of our days over video? It was pretty f- very few people. Yeah. But now just about everyone has to do like something important over video just about every day. Sure. And that's going to continue even after we come out of lockdown because these hybrid experiences are going to be better. Yeah. So there's always going to be something that we're doing on video and mm -hmm, like elevates that we, we make your performance over video better. We, we're the thing that sits between my face and the rest of the world during those times where I'm interacting with the rest of the world over video. And I think that's going to be a ubiquitous thing. Everyone is going to be doing this at least a certain amount of the time and hopefully not just as a substitute for it in the real world, because right now it's a substitute because we can't see each other in person. But hopefully over time, it won't be a substitute. It'll be in addition to right. be, because it's better. And for for companies, for organizations, I think it's an even more profound transformation. I never like using the word disruption. I don't know. I don't know why. It just feels...
4: Because like everyone in Silicon Valley says it, right?
0: <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's an even bigger transformation, which is... Uh, we're still calling it PvP, but instead of personal video presence, we think it's professional video presence. Mm-hmm. And and this is like similar to, you know, where we started this conversation. Like when I, when I made when we, when we started my, my first company, Engine Five, in ninety seven, right? We were figuring out like what percentage of companies would be on the internet, and some people said you know twenty five percent, some people said two percent, and we said you know probably a hundred percent. And the same thing is happening now, right? Like, eight months ago, in the before times, what percentage of every like. School, gym, restaurant, you know, club, business, store. Like what percentage of all the organizations had to conduct themselves over video at least some of the time? It was like very, right. very few. Right. But now close to 100%. And so just like in the late 90s and early 2000s, we went from 1% of like organizations being on the internet to yeah. 100%. Yeah, sure. We're going to go from like 1% of the organizations being on video to 100%. Right. Very soon. And... It's going to change everything. It's going to change uh, again the way that we get healthcare and the way that we have meetings, and some of the changes will make us miss the before times, and some of the changes will be ridiculously better than they were before. Because of the way the human brain works, we tend to focus much more on on like the feeling of um, missing something. Nostalgia. That, 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 I mean, and by the way, and is very now strong. is such
4: a moment for nostalgia too. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we'll
0: definitely like sure. those of us who remember it will definitely miss like the good old days, and we'll remember them as having been better than they really were. Yeah. But we'll also like very gratefully accept all of the improvements, and like those will pretty much go without comment. Well, but all of it, all of the stuff that's better will be just be like automatic.
4: You know, I remember um, being in in the newsroom and being part of the before I even started covering technology, I was doing breaking news at CNN. And I remember the iReport days and when Twitter was beginning to get big. And it was amazing because it was 2008, 2009, and everyone was able to be their own news reporter to some degree. And it was the democratization of information. And it was just such an incredible time. You know, the plane went down to the Hudson and and someone tweeted that infamous image of, of people walking across the plane in the Hudson and getting to safety. And 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 these were the days where we saw the power of disruptive technology to let us all be journalists to some degree and and so when you when you talk about you know letting us all be professional video folks right my head goes to wow this is incredible because you know we can all to some degree be professional w- when it comes to zoom and when it comes to being able to represent ourselves better and be more professional and almost like i i think to like almost have like a news channel or in my background and and look much more slick you know, I, I also go to the unintended consequence, right? And I think about, okay, so what are the things you're thinking about as you're building out you know it's not necessarily like a platform it's software to go on the platform right but you know i just did a did a whole investigation into qanon right and spent a lot of time in the community went to the rally and and you know really it's these are folks who believe in that they are the news and so not to say worst worst case scenario you have these folks who have these millions and millions and millions of people online who are getting kicked off of Facebook and Twitter who decide to create their own, you know, their own Zoom channels and they're using slickly produced software from you guys to to look even more relevant as they're putting out conspiracies that aren't true. But, you know, so so this is where I I play devil's advocate and asking, you know, what what are you guys doing and what are you guys thinking about as you're building this early on knowing all we know now about what tech companies have struggled with over the last you know, five, ten years with the rise of misinformation and with you know the, these um, these struggles over free speech and hate speech and the spread of the conspiracies and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure you're having conversations about it.
0: Yeah, a, a, a lot of them. I think the important thing is to acknowledge that we don't we don't know yet. We don't have all the answers, but we do have a particular point of view, and we have we've at least identified the questions. And one thing that I'm really committed to is. I hate this notion that technology is neutral,
5: yeah.
0: that technology, oh, technology is neutral. It could be used for good. It could be used for bad. I don't buy it. I think that's that's kind of lazy. I think it's, you know, it's passing the buck.
4: But I also think that's a big deal that you say that. And, and I say that as, as someone who's talked to many different founders throughout the years, like, as long as I've covered tech, like you talk to entrepreneurs who are building platforms and they say tech is neutral. It can be used for good or bad. It's a reflection of us humans. Like, you know, and they built platforms on this. We're just the pipes. And, and that's you building something saying like, Hey, that's lazy. Like that's, a, I don't know. That's like a pretty big deal to, to kind of come out in a strong way and say that.
0: I, I mean, I, I, maybe it's, it's, it's how I felt for a long time and it's how I think a lot of the people that, uh, that I work with uh, feel. Uh, so it's certainly not new to the, to the ethos of all turtles of, 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 of kind of how we started it. The whole point is, look, technology, okay. Fire is neutral, right? When it occurs in nature, it's neutral, it's just fire. As soon as you like make a product that uses fire, that's not neutral anymore. You've expressed an opinion about how you want fire used in the world, right? Like technology is not a naturally occurring thing. It's, an, it's a very intentionally built thing. And whenever you do something intentionally, you have a point of view, right? You can try to conceal that point of view. You can try not to think through it enough because you maybe don't care, but like you have a point of view, you have an actual effect, right? Any technology that's been high impact, by definition has like moved the world in some way. And it's absolutely the responsibility of the creators of that technology to say, what direction do they want the world to move in by releasing this product or this technology? intentionally, like what do they want? And then how do they know if it's doing that? And how do they know if it's doing something else that's you know maybe unintentional, but it's their responsibility. It's, it's our responsibility as technologists to worry about the intentional and unintentional uses and the effects of our products, not just on the people who use our products, but just as much on the people who don't use our products.
4: So like when you're in the closed door meetings with, mm-hmm, like, what are you thinking about is like the unintentional use of the software that you're building? Like, what, what is the jam session of worst case scenario?
0: Well, I mean, the one that's top of mind is exactly what you said, right? It's like, how do we, what if people start using this for really harmful things like, uh, Spreading further division, intolerance, you know, conspiracy theories, things that are you know bad for science, bad for society. I mean, that's the that's the that's the easy one to think of. Right. Um, there's probably lots of other things that we don't know about that we haven't thought of. So the question isn't just to like identify the things that we think might go wrong and try to prevent them, but how do we have a structure so that we can identify things that go wrong that maybe we haven't thought of ahead of time? It's the I call it the the, the digital canary. You know, it's like the canary in the coal mine, right? Like, how do we how do we build digital canaries that are the early warning signals for something is happening as a result of our product that that we don't like, and then
4: how do you do you know, it? How do we
0: stop it? So we've well, so we we made some rules. Uh, we started with uh with kind of three rules because you know three is a good number to kind of guide us. In this, they're similar to the rules at, at Evernote. I published our three rules of data protection. Mm-hmm. These are similar. We we're just going to refine them a little bit. They're basically, uh, they're all written to be tautologies. They're all written to sound like very obvious, like A equals A. Because I think like the whole point is all of these rules are very obvious. And the fact that not every company does them is kind of the problem. Like They should be really obvious. Um, so the first one is, is, is just your data is your data. They're all written like this. They're all A equals A. So your data is your data, um, which means that uh, it's not our data. It's your data. So if you entrust us to hold onto your data for some amount of time uh, to run the service or whatever, we have to treat it as this like valuable thing that you have trusted us with. But it's not ours. We don't own it. It's not up to us what we do with it. It's up to you, which basically means that we're going to try everything possible to keep your data private. We're going to try everything possible to keep your data safe because it is a valuable thing that you have entrusted to our care for a temporary amount of time. And the second rule is the product is the product, right? And again, this sounds, it's almost stupid sounding, right? To say it. the product is the product. Yeah, because for so many companies, you don't know what the product is. Right. Uh, and, you know, there's a common saying where, like, if you're not sure what the product is, then, like, maybe you're the product. Right. And what we're saying is, like, no, our, our users aren't the, our product. Our product is our product, uh, which basically means that we'll never sell your data. And we only allow for it. Everything we do at All uh, it's only direct revenue. We don't have anything that um, we're monetizing your data, or we're selling advertising. Not that there's inherently something wrong with that, but that every time you do that, the product is something other than your product, you wind up with these structural business model conflicts. Like yeah. Facebook makes money because it wants you to stick around long enough to click on things. And the way to get you to stick around longer is to get you into a heightened emotional state. And the easiest heightened emotional state to generate algorithmically is outrage. It is much easier to like algorithmically generate, you know, tribal outrage than it is to generate, you know, love and a feeling of like blissful joy. So the business model is like keeping you in a heightened emotional state. Therefore, there's just gonna be a lot of a lot of shit spread around that's like very negative because of this fundamental conflict, right? Whereas like Wikipedia, Doesn't have that as a business objective. Like, they don't care how long you stick around. They just want you to, like, learn something. And of course, it's a vastly different experience. And remember when Wikipedia came out, we would all, like, laugh about, like, oh, I can remember Stephen Colbert doing jokes about how, like, how's anyone gonna trust this? Like, anyone can edit it, right? Ha ha. But it turns out it's, like, the most trusted site on the internet, even though it's, like, anyone can edit it. it, You would think it's totally susceptible to to all of the manipulation that happens at Facebook and Twitter because it's, like, much smaller. Like, I'm going to say something that I have no idea if it's a true statement but it sounds really good. So Well, you know, it's very that's very, it.
4: that's very 2020 if it's any consolation.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'm admitting that this is I have no basis okay. for this other than it sounds good. checkers beware. I'm going to say that uh Facebook like spends more money on or at least used to before the pandemic like spends more money on office snacks <laughs> than like Wikipedia's entire operating budget. <laughs> Um, and yet, like, <laughs> we Wikipedia, don't have this
4: confirmed to our listeners. We don't have this confirmed, but okay. Don't all right. Know. Okay. Don't
0: know. Might be true. Sounds okay. like it's true. Um, I have been yet, there and right? they
4: do have lots of good snacks, you know? They have, they have great snacks. Yeah.
0: yeah. Go ahead. Uh, my brother used to work for Google in the mid-2000s. I had so much food at Google.
4: Oh, my God. Oh, it was the best, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: uh, right, but like Wikipedia, because it doesn't have this structural conflict, manages to be one of the most trustworthy yeah. sites around. So, so that's the second rule, right? The product is the product. And then the third rule is our community is our community, which basically means that it is our responsibility. Like we are inviting people in. It is our responsibility to make sure that people are using us for the stuff that we want in the world and not the stuff that we don't. And here the, the idea is we have to have a strong point of view about what we want and we have to spend a ton of money and time and resources promoting and highlighting and, and sponsoring and curating the stuff we want. Like we want to spend a hundred times the amount of resources on making sure that there's worthwhile, beautiful, important things made and shared with mm-hmm. Like we have to actively spend money and time on that. And I want to spend 100 times more on that than I do on getting rid of the stuff we don't want. But that's also equally important. Like we also have to like get rid of the stuff we want because it's our community.
4: So does that mean you won't let uh, there are people on the no list? Like that means as people begin to sign up, as you begin to open up, it's automatic no if you find out they're and QAnon community, or they are, you know, uh, members, neo-Nazis. Is, is there a point, you talk about having a point of view early on. So what does that actually mean?
0: Yeah, I hate neo-Nazis, and I'm not going to let them on the platform if it's in any way possible to do it. Right. Like, but, I mean, but it what doesn't about, have to get more complicated, so right? what about Sometimes we can't prevent it, right. obviously, right? Like, you are not, especially like, if you're just using mm-hmm, the way that you and I are using it, which is, we're just on a Zoom call, right? And I'm using yeah. it, like, because of rule number one, your data to data, we're not spying on that, right? So we don't see what right. everyone is doing, like, internally. So if neo-Nazis want to use it on their, you know, internal Zoom calls, we're not going to find out about that. Right. You know, we'll, we'll make it against the terms of service. So, you know, if they want to follow the, the law, they'll use yeah. for that. But as soon as they someone posts something publicly or shares it or we find out about it, then yeah, if, yeah. if at all possible, we will stop it. But, you know, it's not it's not a magic solution. But we're also not going to pretend that we owe freedom of speech to Nazis. We don't.
4: Right. And I mean, but then there's also, I mean, the technology has run into problems, like even look at QAnon, there's a lot of gray area here, right, of like, what is acceptable and what's not, you know, what crosses the line and what doesn't. I think this is where tech companies are running into trouble. I think Facebook got into a lot of trouble for not cracking down early on. And then uh, technically, some of the stuff didn't fall into the wheelhouse of, of against their terms of service, right?
0: Yeah, but look, let's just say there's always gray areas. But I often think the gray area is a little bit exaggerated. So let's say, you know, you're having, you're having a house party. You've invited people to come to your house. You're having a house party. And you haven't set, like, that many rules about what people are allowed to do and what they aren't. Because, like, you know, there's gray areas. Who's to say? Right. But then you find out that there's this, like, one guy, like, in the house. And they're doing some, like, really depraved shit. Whatever. Use your imagination. But it's clearly not cool. Right. And you're like, yeah, I didn't make any rules. But I'm clearly not cool with this. Right. So you're going to throw that, that person out. Yeah. And you're not going to be like, well, I didn't specify ahead of time exactly what it was and what it wasn't. And maybe next time you'll have like better rules. But of course, there's going to be gray areas. And of course, there's going to be some edge case where it could go either way. But there's a lot of things that can't go either way that are very clear. Yeah. And if you're hosting a party, it is very much your ethical and legal responsibility to be accountable for what's there. right? If you're driving a car, you are legally responsible for yeah. like the activity of your passengers. You don't get to say like, well, it's it's a gray area. Well, yeah, it is, but you're driving the car, so you're responsible. And so a a part of it is just that step, right? Is that the technologists acknowledging their responsibility for the community that they make, like very specifically. And not pretending that we don't have responsibility for it. We do have responsibility for it. And yes, we're going to get it wrong sometimes because there are gray areas. But if we acknowledge our responsibility, we can at least get it right most of the time. Yeah. And so I think that's like a big part of it. And I think Facebook is starting to do a lot better with that. But it didn't start out because there was all sorts of, like, libertarian nonsense. But uh, <laughs> uh, sorry, I can go on a long rant but about that. that. But that's funny. But, like it, a-
4: but it, is, it, is, it is super funny because, it, it. I mean, what you're trying to say or what you. What it sounds like you're saying is, like, take responsibility. If you don't think it should be on there, don't, don't put it on there. And don't hide behind the fine print is what you're saying to some degree.
0: Yeah, and and don't and don't pretend that you can't even take responsibility because how could you even imagine ahead of time what people are going to do? Like just take the responsibility. And and but the flip side of that is that the rest of the world shouldn't expect perfect performance from you. Of course you're going right. to sometimes get things wrong, but You've taken responsibility. You've done absolutely the best you can. And you got to be serious about that.
4: Then to play devil's advocate, there's the whole other side of this, right? Which is these these Silicon Valley folks, they just have too much power to decide what stays and what goes. So what say you to that? Uh,
0: I mean, yeah, that is the other side. And I find that side much less compelling. Right. uh, Just because I don't think that's responsible for nearly as much of the problems with the world. Yeah. Uh, I'm all in favor if governments wanted to legislate stuff, then they would supersede what the tech founders do. But, you know, frankly, like, if I'm running a private company, and I'm staying within the laws, then it's going to be up to me what who I allow and who I don't based on my ethical and moral responsibilities to the world. Yeah. And if somebody doesn't agree with my moral and ethical responsibilities, then hopefully there's like lots of other options. But yeah, I I, I get that argument, but I kind of call bullshit on it. Yes. But, but that's just step one, like acknowledging the responsibility is just step one. Step two, which I think Facebook also didn't do that much of in the beginning. And they still kind of lame about this, I think, is Facebook didn't spend billions of dollars putting out the things that they wanted, like like making they didn't have a strong point of view about this is what we want to see on Facebook. And like here, let us let us spotlight it. Let us create it. Let us sponsor it. Like this is the stuff that's good. You know, Instagram actually wound up doing that pretty well in, in the beginning. Right. Instagram said, like, we want to be the place for really beautiful photography. Right. And they 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 spotlighted it and they curated it and they spent money making it. And that's why, like, in the beginning, at least Instagram was like a lot of really high quality, beautiful stuff, whereas mm-hmm. like Flickr and everything else just became like a cesspit of you know yeah. ugly images. It, but you know, and they they didn't they didn't keep up with it very much, but they at least, you know, tried. So so the second step is like, you know, again, I'm hosting this party. I have an opinion about the vibe that I want, and it's my responsibility as the host to like to push it in that direction. Yeah. I'm not gonna be like, okay, everyone do whatever they want. No, like I I I wanted a particular theme to this party. I'm gonna I'm gonna like highlight the things. I'm gonna like buy some of the food. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna like do whatever is necessary to get the vibe in the right direction. And I think I think that companies ought to spend again a hundred times more on that than on the negative. Yeah. Because what you spotlight is what you get. If yeah. you set the tone of this as a place that is not for neo-Nazis, you're going to get fewer neo-Nazis yeah. just because like they don't want to hang out at a party that's very much not welcoming to them either. Yeah. So that's, that's also part of it, right? It's just like, yeah, it's your responsibility. Make sure you don't have a business model that contradicts that responsibility by, oh yeah, yeah. I say, I don't want conflict, but I make money when there's conflict. Like if there's ever a disconnect between the way you make money and what your values are, and you're a for-profit company; like your values don't matter. Yeah, it, it's it's always going to go towards how you make money. So make sure there's no conflict, and then you know make sure we we actually promote the stuff that we want to see. And the last thing is to get rid of the stuff that we don't want to see, which hopefully we won't have to spend billions yeah. of dollars a year on because we've done all the other things correctly. But if we have to, we have to.
4: Well, that's super interesting. I'm glad we got into it because I've been saying mm hmm and and in an awkward way for a long time. So like. <laughs> Tell me, you are a naming person. I feel like you do brand stuff very well. Where on earth did Mm mm-hmm come from?
0: Well, you know, it it came out of Old Turtles as the studio. Mm -hmm. And for years, people would ask me like, why'd you call it Old Turtles? It's such a strange name. Why is it called Old Turtles? And I was like, hold my beer. Like I, I just wanted I wanted a name that would make people stop asking me about why old turtles is such a strange name. So so we came up with mm-hmm. and total success. No one's asked me about old turtles, you know, since then. Um, I, look, the real reason is um, it's it's actually kind of exactly what you said. It's a it's a word that everyone can say unintentionally. Everyone can say mm-hmm without thinking about it. But if you try to say it intentionally, it's actually this friction like even I have to like pause for a second and consider like how I'm going to pronounce it and which syllable am I going to inflect and so it's almost like every time I say the name it's like a little micro performance Mm -hmm. I have to perform it (laughs) and um, the app is for performing it's for improving your performance and so like to get you started like just thinking of the name is a little performance and I think it's kind of beautiful so that's why we named it that.
4: more from dot 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 sign up for the gray area at dot 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 media dot com slash newsletter if you're listening to this the very first edition is out today and follow along on our social media i'm at laurie siegel on twitter and instagram and the show is at first contact podcast on instagram on twitter we're at first contact pod and if you like what you heard leave us a review on apple Podcasts or wherever you listen we really appreciate it First Contact is a production of Dot 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 Media, executive produced by Laurie Siegel and Derek Dodge. This episode was produced and edited by Sabine Jansen and Jack Regan. The original theme music is by Xander Singh. First Contact with Lori Siegel is a production of Dot 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 Media and iHeartRadio.
1: The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David.